Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. What a wild weekend it was. There's so much news that has been breaking, um, and we have so much to discuss today. The ACLU has been fighting to get Missouri residents the right to vote by mail during this pandemic without needing a notary. The federal government has been seeking to jail some protesters for, quote, incitement of a riot based on what they posted on Facebook. And then what about what happened in the Central West End yesterday? You've probably seen the images of a pair of St. Louis lawyers brandishing guns in front of their Midwestern palazzo. Could they face charges for that, or did they have every right to defend their home? We'll discuss all these issues and more with our Legal Roundtable. And our panel today includes Bill Freivogel. He's a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, as well as an attorney. Bill, welcome back to the show. Hi. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, making his legal roundtable debut is Eric Banks. He's a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. So we have a lot to talk about today. I think we have to start with what happened on Friday. This is when Mayor Lyda Krusen was accused of doxing some local activists on a live stream. Bill Freivogel, what happened here? Well, uh, Mayor Krusen began reading the uh, complaints of some of the protesters who were calling for closing the workhouse and for defunding the police. And, uh, you know, she would read out the papers that she had been handed by the protesters and uh, what they want to transfer money to and how they wanted to zero out the police department. And then she would uh, give their names and addresses as well in, in a number of cases. And um, so she was asked afterwards to apologize. She didn't at first. She did eventually. And that was, and that was uh, uh, you know, they removed that, uh, that video. Um, you know, there, there was probably, she probably wasn't violating any law. Um, yeah, we, suppose... we hear young people talk a lot about this idea of doxing. Um, is doxing a, a legal term? Um, Eric Banks, <laughs> is this something you've ever seen in all your reading of the law? I never heard of the word doxing until I Googled it this morning in preparation for today's program. <laughs> so this is not something that routinely comes up in the practice of law. Uh, Nicole, no. do you think any laws were broken with what uh, Mayor Krusen did here on this video? I don't think any laws were broken. I certainly think it's in bad taste, uh, you know, and we can argue over the morality of, you know, and, and you know, the tackiness of doing it. But that I don't think there's any violation of the law here. The ACLU issued a statement on this, and they said it is shocking and misguided for Mayor Lyda Krusen of St. Louis to broadcast the addresses of those who dare to express a different viewpoint on an issue of public concern. It serves no apparent purpose beyond intimidation. So that's their take on this. This drew some big pushback, some people calling for her resignation. And the reason we're going to talk about it even more today is it also inspired protesters to march to Krusen's house on Sunday. That's when things got really interesting. So the protesters chose to walk down Portland Place. That's a private street. That's where they were confronted by a middle-aged couple standing in front of their mansion, and they were each brandishing a gun. Um, there has been some talk of, did this couple commit a crime by having these guns and having them? It looked kind of like they were pointed. Nicole, a former prosecutor, is it possible that that's a crime just standing on your lawn and pointing these guns the way they pointed them? 
Yeah, I think that's a crime. Um, it, there's a crime called unlawful use of a weapon. Um, it's in the Missouri statutes and it, uh, you know, I'll cut it short because it's a lot of legal language, but basically it says that if a person exhibits an, a weapon in an angry or threatening manner, hmm. uh, that's a crime. And it's, uh, a lot of people sh- uh, shorten it to being called either brandishing or flourishing, um, a weapon. And, and, you know, that's what these people were doing. I've seen it now in a number of still photos and in fact, in video. And I don't know what these people are doing. They look like they were trying to reenact a Mr. and Mrs. Smith movie or something. Um, but I, I mean, they're out there pointing these weapons at these people who are standing in the street. And, you know, I, again, I'm not sure I know, you know, the ordinances of what a private street is, but these people were not on their property. They were walking down the street. This is where I, um, I think we need to pull in our former city councilor, which is Eric Banks. Um, these private streets, when I first moved to St. Louis, I had never heard of private streets before that. This is a, a legal term here. What does that mean? Did the protesters have no right to be in what is usually a public thoroughfare? Well, having lived on a private street, I can tell you that the Private Street Owners Association probably would say that. But that is not the case. You cannot control the coming and goings of citizens on your private street. I don't care if you have um, um, gates there. I don't care if you have off-duty police officers as security. It's just not possible. That is a myth that the private street residents frequently want to put forth, but you cannot act with impunity come out of your house with a automatic weapon and point it in the direction of people who are walking down the street. It's just beyond the pale. So I will say I have attempted to walk my dog on Portland Place, the same private street where this couple lives. I was turned away. I was told you are not allowed to walk your dog there. Eric, you're saying they don't they did not have the legal right to do that. Oh, they stopped me when I was driving through there. They being the um, rented security. And so I I know that it's an argument. I disagree with them. Hmm. Bill Freivogel, thoughts on this? Well, I was talking to uh, one of our mutual friends, Mike Wolf, the former chief justice of the Missouri Supreme Court about this. And he was saying he thought that the McCloskey's, uh, the the, the, the lawyer couple who were brandishing or exhibiting their weapons in front of their house, uh, that they could be charged. Uh, but that uh, it would be stupid to do so. He, he, he uh, you know, he's a colorful guy and said, uh, you know, this comes under the heading of knuck- being knuckleheads. Uh, they were just asking and uh, they were just acting in a, in a, in a foolish, foolish manner. And, you know, a way that makes, I mean, they're, they're, they end up on the front page of the Post-Dispatch and other papers. Uh, you know, these, this picture is going to be all around the all around the all around the country, if not the world. President so- Trump tweeted about them this morning. He didn't add his own commentary, but he did retweet ABC News's <laughs> video of this. I mean, this is now they are famous, and I think the better term is probably infamous. Nicole, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we look at it and we look at their outfits, and and you know, I made the Mister and Mrs. Smith joke, and you know, it is you know, you are tempted to call them knuckleheads, but that's an assault rifle and it was being pointed and I find it incredibly uncomfortable. And so I actually think it's more serious than that. I, you know, this, these weapons could have gone off easily. They were obviously threatening. Hmm. 
Eric, what do you think? You obviously, you do feel that these streets, they shouldn't be allowed to close down the street. Uh, would you like to see these two charged uh, under the criminal codes? I'm not going to say that I want to see them charged under either unlawful use of a weapon or um, assault form, which is basically putting somebody in a position where they feel threatened. I trust Kimberly Gardner at the state level will do the right thing. I trust that Julian Bush at the city ordinance level would do the right thing. I will say this, though. I think that what happened with those two lawyers happened in part as God's way of reminding me not to point or paint all police officers with the same brush. Hmm. So it's kind of like, oh, so this is what it feels like when somebody in your profession does something stupid or unlawful. So you're saying not all lawyers are like these two. Yes, and not all police officers are like the ones that we saw in Minneapolis and Florissant, thank God. And maybe the, maybe the Bar Association should do something about it. I mean, you know, we had, we've had a couple of former presidents who were disbarred for what they did, not uh, you know, in their law practice, but what they did in the White House. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that there could be uh, a disciplinary action uh, in this circumstance. Mike Wolf thinks so, too, by the way. <laughs> Eric, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think you'd see the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, uh, which adjudicates these bar-related matters, do you think they'd take this on? They have already received um, informal complaints, conversations with this. Um, I think the question has been raised, well, since this falls outside of the practice of law, can you really bring a complaint under these circumstances? I believe you can because basically it's conduct unbecoming of a lawyer. It demeans the profession and we're all at risk of being subject to disciplinary procedures if we do something that reflects bad on the profession. And I don't know of anything that could reflect any worse on the profession than what we saw yesterday. Hmm. So they could maybe be in some trouble here, Nicole. Yeah, I mean, whether the bar can, I don't know. I, I haven't seen an actual rule of professional responsibility that I can think of interpreting to cover this. I know that in some of those other cases when we're talking about presidents and things like that, if they're convicted of something um, or have some kind of discipline upon them, then that kind of comes into the professional rules. Um, I don't know that this actually does, but as a practical matter, I know that the bar generally doesn't reach out for things like this. Um, so I think it's pretty unlikely that we will see discipline by the bar. Hmm. It was interesting. I saw the Riverfront Times reported that the, the female member of this couple, she is a member of the Bar Association's ethical review panel. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if she'll have to maybe sit on her own case. I'm sure that's not how it works. But, <laughs> Bill, you... She, you, she may <laughs> have to leave that panel, as a matter <laughs> They might want to deal with their own house here. We heard from some <laughs> listeners with some thoughts on this. Um, Dave writes, on a personal note, I think the mere existence of gated neighborhoods like Portland Place reflects the longstanding, deeply troubling history of race and class-based segregation in St. Louis. Um, Nicole, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was going to say is that, you know, I woke up to this blowing up my social media, of course, like probably everyone else. And some of my friends who uh, don't live in St. Louis were, you know, asking me about, you know, what is this about this, these gated communities? And I found myself in this position of having to explain how St. Louis has this 
just incredibly sad, racist, racial segregation history with these gated communities and that I think most of us look at them as remnants of a bygone era. era. Unfortunately, some of these people are taking them all too seriously. Um, but, you know, there's there's the Del Mar divide and all of these issues in the Central West End. And, um, you know, it's time for these gates to go. <laughs> Uh, we're talking to our legal roundtable today. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, and Eric Banks of Banks Law. And if you want to join our conversation, particularly if you have a legal question for our assembled team, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're discussing the legal events of the past month and actually of the last weekend uh, with an esteemed panel. That includes today uh, Eric Banks of Banks Law, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Just before the break, we were talking about the case of this couple with a very elaborate mansion in the Central West End on what has long been considered a private street, Portland Place, how they were seen. um, They came out when protests went down their street and sort of brandishing some firearms should they be charged with a crime? Should they face discipline from the bar? We've got a couple callers who want to weigh in on this or have questions, so I'm going to go to the phone lines. Uh, Mariah is calling from St. Louis. Um, Mariah, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what do you think about all this? So there are four core firearm safety rules, uh, and I see no fewer than three violations of those. So the first one is you do not point your weapon at anyone or anything you're not willing to destroy. Secondly, keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on target and you have decided to shoot. Third is know your target, your line of fire, and what lies behind your target. So those are the three violations I see in the video. The other one is to treat every weapon as though it is loaded. Hmm. So the lady swept the crowd broadly with no trigger finger discipline and no thought as to what lies beyond. At one point, she nearly strikes her partner's head with her hand and pistol. The gentleman is in a similar violation as well. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of textbook what not to do. It it very much is. And I don't oppose, I'm a firearms enthusiast myself. I don't oppose brandishing firearms, but I oppose doing so without due regard for public safety. If someone points a gun at me with finger on trigger and emotionally charged, I'm going to interpret that as a threat on my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm either fleeing or firing at this threat. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you make a great point there. Thank you for that call. I want to go back to the phone lines. Uh, Jeff is calling from St. Louis. Um, Jeff, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Uh, yeah, I was calling with regard to the comments a while ago about the legal status of the private streets in the city. And the fact is that the residents of those streets own the streets themselves. They pay to maintain them. The city of St. Louis does not maintain those streets. Those are owned by the residents, by land indenture, from when those were established over 130 years ago. So they are within their rights fully, legally, as has been demonstrated many times over the years, to restrict access to those streets as they see fit. 
And it's also, frankly, a little disingenuous to characterize the protesters you talked about as visiting a private street when, in fact, what they did was smash a historic gate that was locked at the eastern end of the street to gain access where they proceeded to march onto someone's private property and scream threats and stupid slogans, which is all they ever do. Okay, Jeff, I want to thank you for that call um, and and for the point you're making about the private streets there. I do want to address the smashed gate. This seems to be a question that has lots of armchair detectives looking into this. Um, This attorney who was, you know, out brandishing his gun, he has produced a photo of what he says was the smashed wrought iron gates leading into this street. And um, news reporters from KMOV have showed a video that showed the protesters just opening this gate and walking through it. So it's not clear when it got smashed. It does appear to be smashed at some point. Um, Eric, I want to go back to you since I think the caller was sort of challenging your interpretation of this. He's saying that the pattern in practice here is that the people who maintain these private streets they own them. Is there some law that that flies in the face of your point, even if you continue to feel strongly that that that's not how it should work? Let's assume for the sake of conversation that he's absolutely right. Let's assume that. If your house is being broken into, you don't call, if you live on a private street, you're going to call 911. A St. Louis police officer is going to respond. If your house catches on fire, a St. Louis fire department is going to respond. Mm -hmm. The St. Louis water department Uh, provides water. The St. Louis Refuge Department picks up your trash. And um, at least on the private street that I lived on, they clean the street. Mm. We couldn't park on um, the street on one side certain days, certain times, because the street clean was going to come. They maintain the park area. So yes, technically, it may be some kind of hyper-technical, we own this, but you're sure willing to call upon the city when you want some help. Now, then again, people in um, private streets, they pay taxes to the city. Sure. So they're not getting something they didn't pay for, but don't expect to have too many privileges too based on, I own this. I think that's a great point. Um, Bill, I know you're also sort of interested in the social media aspect of all of this. I mean, this story, whew, it's uh, it's got a lot of people talking and it didn't take long for that to happen. Well, I mean, this story wouldn't have happened like this if it had, you know, 10 years ago. Because, you know, we have fa- uh, face the, the live streaming of Lyda Krusen's, uh naming of the petitioners. Uh, and, and then, you know, last, last night, I mean, when when I started getting like messages, you know, I'm looking at a tweet. First, I see a tweet from a University of Missouri uh, journalism student who's got a video of these two lawyers. And then Laurie Scrivan, the terrific photographer for the Post-Dispatch, has got photos of them and she's tweeting them out. And, and uh, you know, this is like a, this is like created for, by and for this, this, social media world we live in and and things get really crazy you know people's their reputations i mean these in some ways i feel i you know as, as badly as i think these uh people behaved i mean they've, they've ruined their reputations for the rest of their lives yeah you, know, you know this is this is what they're going to be remembered for 
for the rest of their lives. And St. Louis is going to be remembered for this. I mean, hopefully not for the rest of our life, but but hopefully yeah, not. I mean, this is, I'm hearing from people all over the country right now. Nicole, I'm wondering, do you see some irony in the fact that this protest was inspired by the mayor, quote unquote, doxing people, and it ended up with this couple getting doxed? I mean, the internet is feasting on photos of their house and everybody knows their address at this point. Is there some poetic justice here or is this just kind of mean spirited? Yeah, and um, I'm going to put myself in the same category with Eric that I didn't know what doxing was until this morning. I don't know if that's a quality of my age or what, but um, it's absolutely ironic. I mean, when, you know, she's out there listing names and addresses of people and then uh, people are judging that. And then here they are. Um, I think by the time I had gotten on social media this morning, their, you know, their law firm was publicly um, outed and uh, everything about them was publicly you know, out there about these two lawyers who are out there with a the gun. So um, I think in some ways it's a, a product of our age and the social media and everything that is going on in the world right now. We got it's a tweet. An irony. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, that's a. Uh... Uh, We got a tweet from McPherson who says, good discussion. I'm wondering about point of view. We haven't seen any video that was shot from the homeowner's point of view. What might it have looked like from the front porch? Do we know if any of the protesters were armed? Bill, does that make any difference if the protesters were armed? Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, if, if you're talking about a criminal charge against someone for brandishing a weapon, if if they were facing somebody who was pointing a gun at them, that that might make it that might well make a difference because, you know, you can defend yourself. And uh, but uh, I, I don't know of any reason to believe that the protesters were armed. Yeah. And I certainly haven't seen anything, um, any evidence of that. Nicole. Yeah, I was just going to say I saw a video on social media this morning. Of course, you know, the people who are actually in that group are posting their own, you know, uh, videos and um it, it was people, from my perspective in that video, it was people, you know, walking by on their way to Cruson's house. I don't, from what I could see, it didn't look like they were targeting that home mm-hmm. in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly haven't seen anything that suggests that, that people were getting up in their face until... Uh, this couple came out with the guns. But I, I think it's an interesting question. It'll be very interesting to <laughs> it's going to be very interesting to hear what happens next on this. Um, I want to go to one more hot button issue. It has conservatives and liberals sharply divided here. And just like these protesters, people have a very different point of view depending on where you're standing, whether you're on the steps of this house or whether you're on the street. And that has to do with gay rights. The U.S. Supreme Court has found that employers may not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, Missouri is one of about half the states in the country that didn't have state law that had explicit protections for that. Bill, do you think the Supreme Court decision is going to make a big difference here? Well, I think in a lot of courts, it doesn't apply directly to the Missouri human rights law. So, uh, you know, it's not it, it's, it won't have an immediate af- effect. But I think the judges in both federal and state court will look at the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, decision that sex uh, that the use of the word sex in in that case in Title VII, the employment discrimination law, uh, includes all forms of sex, including uh, uh, all, uh, gay, uh, transgendered, uh, etc. Uh, I think that that will have a very big persuasive effect on courts all around the country. Uh, so I wouldn't be at all surprised with the Missouri Supreme Court 
uh, were to say, well, you know, in light of the Supreme Court's decision uh, on what sex means in Title VII, you know, we agree that it, it, it also covers uh, all forms of sex in the Missouri human rights law. Plus, there's, you know, there's also a uh, proposal in the legislature uh, that would explicitly change uh, the law to specifically address uh, this particular kind of issue. Hasn't that um, been in the legislature for like the past 20 years? I mean, people keep introducing years. it. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. My understanding is this decision largely is talking about employment. Does that mean that it's still legal in Missouri to discriminate against uh, LGBTQ people in other ways? Nicole, any thoughts on that? I think that um, that remains to be seen, you know, when we interpret the law in other contexts here in Missouri. And as, you know, as a plaintiff's attorney myself, I'm certainly going to argue that it applies in a whole lot of different contexts. The Missouri Supreme Court has now said that the interpretation of the word sex in Title VII means you know, that LGBTQIA cannot be discriminated against. And to me, that's huge. And I think that, you know, it remains to be seen for litigation going forward, but I think it can only be a good thing. Hmm. Eric, any thoughts on how this could play out here in Missouri? Well, as a human being, I'm ecstatic that the Supreme Court came down the way that it did. As a lawyer that sometimes represents employers, hmm. well, um, they may not be too happy with that decision, but that's okay. I'm a human being first and a lawyer second, and I may have corporate clients, but I don't want those corporate clients to discriminate. I don't care what type of protected class it is. And one of my jobs is to try to make sure that they don't. On the other hand, I think that it was a good victory, but we're not able to pop the champagne yet, because it is still very, very difficult to prove plaintiff's employment cases under this judicial climate, if for no other reason, now both the federal and the state government have adopted the but for standard. So the only, you have to prove that the only reason why the adverse employment action took place was because of the status the protected status. And that's not usually done with a smoking gun. It's usually done with circumstantial evidence and it's an uphill battle. So these will still be tough cases if somebody wants to say they were discriminated against for this reason and it affected their employment. They've still got to build a pretty good case here. They can't just waltz in and, and say, I'm gay and I was fired. That's right. One, one interesting thing about it is it was written, the opinion was written by Neil Gorsuch, one of the new conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts went along with him, so there were six votes. Uh, Josh Hawley, our senator, uh, said that uh, this was the end of the conservative movement as we knew it. Well, we're talking to Bill Freivogel of Southern <laughs> Illinois University Carbondale, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, and Eric Banks of Banks Law, all about the legal issues affecting people across Missouri, here in St. Louis, and also in the Metro East. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation. Coming up next, we'll talk about a couple cases involving the ACLU. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.
Welcome back. We're discussing all the legal events of the past month with our roundtable. And that's Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, Eric Banks of Banks Law, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. I want to check in on the absentee ballot case being pursued by the ACLU of Missouri. Now, Missouri state law previously allowed people to cast an absentee ballot, basically allowed for them to vote by mail, if they experienced, quote, incapacity or confinement due to illness or physical disability. If that was their reason, they didn't need a notary to sign off on the ballot. Now, the ACLU filed a lawsuit saying that fear of contracting the virus should count as incapacity or confinement. They lost in circuit court, but this month, the Missouri Supreme Court weighed in. Uh, Bill, can you get us up to speed on the latest on this one? Yeah, well, the Missouri Supreme Court said that the lower court judge had been uh, had made a mistake to, to go along with uh, Missouri Attorney General Schmidt and dismiss this case uh, you know, before allowing it to proceed. Uh, so the, the, the Supreme Court sent it back. Uh, you know, the, the, they pointed out that the right to vote is fundamental uh, under the Missouri Constitution and, uh, and said that they, the, the court should be able to, the, the court should hear the arguments that everybody basically should be able to cast a, a vote by mail without voting it you know it could should be able to vote absentee without having to have a notary uh, attest to their signature. Now, since this case was filed, um, Governor Parson did sign into law some new rules that allowed people 65 and over or with pre-existing conditions to vote absentee without a notary. So this would just be for the rest of us. Eric Banks, does that significantly change the legal argument here, do you think? I don't think so. I believe that it um, is a good strike against voter suppression. But I wish, um, I'm just not as optimistic as our good senator that um, the conservative way of life as we know it is now no longer with us. You don't think it's over, the, the whole uh, conservative movement. It's come to an abrupt halt thanks to that Supreme Court decision. There is a lot of ground between St. Louis and Kansas City that, of course, is interrupted by Columbia. It's <laughs> a good way of saying it. Now, Nicole, the Solicitor General, in trying to fight the ACLU on this, they said this brings a, quote, radical revolution as to how voting is done in the state of Missouri. It would basically let any of us vote by mail using these absentee ballots, um, at least during this particular pandemic. Is there a good argument that this is something the legislature needs to be addressing, not the courts? Um, sure. I mean, we can always argue procedure, but I, I mean, it still seems like it needs to be done. I mean, we're in a, you know, we're in a time of a pandemic and there, I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm still terrified for my children. I'm still afraid for, you know, people going out there and standing in crowds and, you know, this coronavirus isn't going away and it's going to be here in November. And I just watched actually a long episode last night about how, Oregon has been voting by mail beautifully for years and not had any problems. And, you know, there just really doesn't seem any any reason to not be doing this, whether it's by the legislature or the Missouri Supreme Court. Now, I can see an argument that it should be the legislature that does this, of course, because that's the procedure, you know, in our in our government. Um, but Regardless, it needs to be done. Eric, do you think this would set a precedent for other diseases? Like if they go ahead and let everybody vote by mail this time, um, if there's a much lower level outbreak kind of going on, would that apply in that case? 
I certainly hope so. <laughs> You're in favor. Bill, That's thoughts right. on that? Would, would this apply uh, well, in other diseases? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of guessing that the, the eventual court decision would not necessarily apply in other instances, although it'd be something that then could be referred back to as precedent. I mean, the, you know, the sort of ar argument is, is equal protection. So, so a person should a person who's 64 have to get a notary, making it much harder to vote by by mail than a person who's 65. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is, so is that is that equal protection? So that's a constitutional issue that, you know, that, that a court that's proper for a court to decide. And I think they could well say, you know, that's not equal protection. And so you got to let everybody do it. Now, the ACLU, in this case, oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> The ACLU filed two other lawsuits this month, too. These were both in federal court. One was against the president of the Board of Aldermen for the city of St. Louis. That's Lewis Reed. Um, he had blocked a constituent on Twitter, so they couldn't see anything that he was tweeting. Um, and then the other is against U.S. Senator Roy Blunt for hiding a comment on Facebook. Um, what is the legal precedent on this one? Do you have a constitutional right to see your elected officials' communications on this private platform? Anyone dying to jump in on this? I see, Bill. Well, you're you're dying. <laughs> I am. Hey, well, it's not a private platform. I mean, these politicians are. are it's it's a pub. It's a public forum, Le you know, legally. Yeah, that's a term of, of you know art and constitutional interpretation. It's a public forum, and they cannot deny a person access to that public forum based on viewpoint discrimination. Well, you know, so that's, that's pr previously, yeah. um, didn't we have this argument about Josh Hawley? He was saying that Facebook and Twitter are more like public utilities. And I feel like you, Bill, disagreed with that. So how does this become a public forum? But yeah, well, those are two different, those are two different uh, kettles of fish. Uh, it becomes a, for a public forum because these politicians uh, are including Josh Hawley and including the president of the United States are using their Twitter accounts uh, as to, to make public pronouncements. Uh, I mean, I think the White House has actually said that that the president's uh, tweets uh, can can count as public pronouncements. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a court case involving Trump uh, trying to cut off people who were who we didn't want to be on his Twitter account. And the Supreme Court's and not the Supreme Court, uh, federal court said uh, that it was a public forum and the president could not deny them access. I will say it was pretty interesting. I, I saw so many people on Twitter right after this lawsuit was filed where they said, oh, I've just been unblocked by some of these people. Like, I think a lot of politicians had been, you know, just quietly doing this. And this lawsuit, I don't know that they even need to keep fighting it on court. It appears to have put a lot of people on notice that you're not allowed to do that. So, Nicole, maybe that's the desired outcome right there. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, as we switch from print media to social media, I think it's very become very clear that this is the place for public discourse. And if these politicians are going to use these social media markets for their public discourse, if they can't block specific viewpoints, that's just First Amendment law. The Internet itself may be the Wild West in terms of regulation, but there is plenty of precedent on public discourse and the First Amendment. And this is pretty clear. You can't do viewpoint suppression.
Now, we've got a couple of um, interesting cases involving federal prosecutors that I want to get here, get into here before the end of our show. But I did hear from a couple of different listeners who had some feedback related to our earliest conversation, which had to do, again, with the protests that marched through this, quote unquote, private street in the Central West End. Homeowners uh, brought out their guns, appeared to be brandishing them. And uh, Rick wants to know on Twitter, how does Missouri's expansive castle doctrine apply? Does anyone in our panel, Nicole, do you have a sense of how that might apply or not apply in this case? Yeah, I mean, Eric's smiling, so I, you know, I'll give him the opportunity to speak, too, absolutely, if he wants to. You want to well, go you ahead, go Eric? first. Okay. And the castle doctrine is basically if someone's threatening your, your person or your home, um, the castle doctrine specifically is if some, someone's threatening your home or, or your property. Um, that's why I said, I watched that video of those those protesters walking by and that did not appear to be the case and they especially if they were on the street they were not on that um on the homeowner's property Hmm. eric would you agree with that i agree the castle doctrine does not extend to the street and as i looked at those videos and the photographs i was like um my goodness they're not even on the people's line by the street and the sidewalk of course they maybe were not on the street on the line because of the folks brandishing the weapons But I don't believe that um, it applies here. I think that, heaven forbid, if some of the individuals would have broken into their homes and they were inside and they defended themselves, then we'd be having a different um, conversation. But if you're afraid, stay in your house. If you're afraid, don't come outside looking for trouble because generally that's what you're going to find. That actually uh, gets right into a tweet from another listener who says, glad there is discussion on the legality of brandishing and assaulting with deadly weapons via stand your ground claims. Nonviolent trespass does not qualify for the lethal defense. Racing out onto one's lawn, instigating conflict actually implicates the homeowner, which is, I believe, the point Eric just made uh, equally well. So I I wanted to loop back and sort of close that thought there. So thank you both for your your added thoughts on that. But I do want to make sure we have some time to get into this case that federal prosecutors brought against a St. Louis man named Michael Avery. Now, he was an activist in Ferguson. He had apparently traveled to Minneapolis to protest the death of George Floyd at the hands of police there. He returned to St. Louis, and police arrested him at his home in front of his three-year-old daughter, and they sought to hold him without bail on a charge of inciting a riot. Now, the key evidence here seems to be just, well, I guess there were a number of Facebook posts, but the two that they really were pointing to, one was talking about, as he was coming back to St. Louis, bring all the people out. Um, And another was anybody in St. Louis interested in being part of a level red action and can be available Saturday night, please inbox me before I leave Minnesota. The feds are saying red action means a high level of violence. Seems like that's going to be something that's not quite so clearly stated as they're trying to make it state. Bill, what kind of right do we have to post things like this on, on Facebook? Can we call for a red action or are we potentially facing some legal trouble here? Well, it does come down to, you know, what the, does red action mean a violent action like the government was claiming? Um, I mean, you, you, you can you can uh, argue for people to come out and protest, uh, you know, you you but you are getting to the limits of the First Amendment protection when if you are very specifically organizing a violent uh or illegal protest. Um, 
So, I mean, if red action means violent action, uh, then you're, you're, you're getting to the outer limits. I think the federal judge in this case did a really good job of, of not caving into a, an as exaggerated federal prosecutor's uh, interpretation of these tweets. Because I, I think they were, you know, they could be interpreted in different ways. They could be interpreted, you know, uh, as being planning an illegal action or just, hey, let's get out and, and do our, our protest. And, you know, as as Bill alluded to here, uh, the federal judge did decline to continue holding him without bail. At this point, uh, the prosecutors have dropped these charges. They left open the possibility of refiling them. Nicole, uh, you used to be a federal prosecutor here. Thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this seemed like it was really reaching. I mean, one of the videos that they discussed um, as being a part of the charge was the video where, and I went back and I watched it, where Mr. Avery uh, is riding his bicycle and talking to some bicycle cops who I guess start out by talking to him by saying, you know, hi, Mr. Avery, back, Mr. Avery, you know, it, um, and, and then he says some things back to them about, you know, wouldn't want you to retire too soon. And then um, the federal prosecutors were saying that was a threat. I wouldn't want you to retire too soon. But that, I mean, and then um, that's some pretty weak later, sauce as far as a threat goes. Exactly, it's it's weak. And then later in the video, he says something like "off with the pigs" or "off the pigs." And um, the judge said, "I thought it was interesting from the stand." The judge said, "Well, you know, in my day in the '60s, off the pigs was a Black Panther chant. You know, that was." pretty typical not you know it wasn't you couldn't arrest everyone who said off the pit and um you know i so again i think it's you have to find a nexus between the statements and some violence and there's really no nexus between his statements and any violence that can be found here it was really a pretty weak charge and i think the judge was If they could have connected the dots and showed that a Facebook friend of this activist then went out and did acts of violence or looting, would that have been a different case, Nicole? Do you think then they could have, even as vaguely worded as it was, would that have then been enough? Well, you can be certain that the prosecutors wouldn't have missed that. And you can be certain that that would have been brought up, right? But, um, you know, I don't know. I think you would have to have maybe even a little bit more of a nexus with the people coming in and saying, yes, we read it because we did that because, you know, he was telling us to. There's just there's not a nexus here. And it does seem like the, the prosecutors on this, they got some of these facts wrong. The St. Louis American did some really good reporting on this, um, that the prosecutors were saying he had no community ties here, yet they arrested him at home. His child was there. His parents were there. Um, it just seems like kind of some sloppy uh, prosecuting work going on here. Eric, any thoughts on that? Well, I tell you what, the U.S. Attorney's Office was as wrong as two left shoes on this one. And while I respect the office generally, they lost cool points on this one, because this is something I would expect from communist China. Hmm. Eric has some strong feelings on this one. It's interesting. Another St. Louis man, this is a homeless man named Marcus Hunt. He was charged with a felony for posting the recipe for napalm on Facebook. He was charged with distribution of information relating to explosives, destructive devices, and weapons of mass destruction. Um, his attorney says he has untreated bipolar disorder. And again, this is a guy who's, who's homeless. And the lawyer noted that the information was widely available online. There was no evidence that he intended to use it for violent purposes. It, it just feels like maybe... 
trying to get some sort of political score that, hey, we're we're finding the people who are causing these these protests and causing these riots because the president was wound up about it. Do you think, Bill Freivogel, that could have been a, a motivation in seeking out some of these cases against what seems like some pretty low hanging fruit? Yeah, I mean, it could have been. I mean, I think I, I really agree with uh, uh, with Nicole about it being really reaching and and not just ha- not having the evidence here. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually concerned with the number of things the U.S. Attorney's Office is doing. You know, they're doing a lot more prosecuting of these gun crimes, which is, uh, you know, at this time when we're talking about the incarceration is just resulting in longer and longer sentences for uh, for people. And of course, mm-hmm. I've I also wasn't too uh, I wasn't too pleased with the U.S. Attorney's efforts uh, in connection with the uh, 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 getting rid of the Flynn prosecution on the federal level. Mm-hmm. He was that was our, our local U.S. Attorney who who consulted yeah. on that. We did get a tweet from someone who says red level action means high risk of arrest, not intended violence. That's how I've heard it used since 2014. I know Cori Bush, who has been a congressional candidate, she's come out and said the same thing. So. Again, it kind of comes down to the interpretation of these Facebook posts, and that's a lot to hang a felony on. In our final, I guess, four minutes here today, I want to talk about a, another case here that's been um, drawing a lot of protests locally. This is in Florissant. Uh, Florissant Police Detective Joshua Smith has been charged with two counts of assault, one felony and one misdemeanor, and one count of armed criminal action. He appeared to use his vehicle to run into a suspect, and as that suspect was knocked down, um, Smith then came out and appeared to be kind of pummeling him and handcuffing him. It's very hard video to watch. Uh, this has become a major flashpoint. Lots of protests in, in Florissant over this. And what people are protesting is they want to see these other two officers um, face charges as well. Nicole, what would it take to charge the people who did not appear to be driving, did not appear to be pummeling this man in handcuffs, but were present while these things happened? Right. So, um, I've watched that video several times. I still can't 100% understand what's going on in it. It's so just out there. But I think the other two police officers were in the car, and we don't know what's happening in that car. Are they aiding and encouraging, which is really the the language for accomplice liability? Did they have to aid and encourage the action that happened there, or they actually have to participate directly? Um, and so that's what it would come down to. So we don't know what was happening in that car. We don't know what they're saying. They don't, we don't know, are they saying hit him, hit him? Um, you know, it, that would change things a lot. So uh, on this one, you kind of have to reserve judgment and say, not sure what happened there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there has been all this pressure for Florissant to do something about these other guys. But Eric, do you see any sort of clear cut um, case on this? For these so I agree with Nicole. This is not an instance where two or three police officers stood by for eight minutes, 49 seconds while they were being video recorded, while people plead, pleaded, get off his neck, get off his neck. I know of no evidence to suggest that these other two police officers knew what the henchman was going to be doing. So a much different case than we're, than we saw, as Eric alluded to so expertly in Minneapolis, Bill. Yes, uh, the facts are different, but I think they both go to the question of what is the responsibility of the bystand of the officer who's accompanying the wrongdoer, you know, and, and and which the Minneapolis thing certainly certainly raises. And you know, does what what do do police have a responsibility to stop their colleagues from? Uh, 
excessive use of force and to also to tell the truth about what they've observed. Uh, I think they do. And I think that, that too often uh, th they've been permitted to hide behind uh, a blue wall of silence. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things on this case is that apparently these officers filed some sort of report after they got back from this incident um, that appears to have been more innocuous than the incident itself. Should anybody face charges or discipline for what was or not or was not in that report? That seems like that might be something that somebody should be looking at, at if they're not already looking at. Uh, Nicole, any thoughts on that? I actually see Eric getting ready to go ahead, Eric. Well, if Watergate has taught us anything, the cover up is often worse than the underlying crime. That's yeah, a great I point. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. Um, and this is, um, man, there have just been so many legal issues this month. We haven't even been able to talk about Johnson & Johnson getting their St. Louis verdict turned from $4.6 to $2.1 billion. We haven't been able to talk about Bayer settling its roundup cases. It feels like the white-collar guys are kind of getting off the hook this month because there's just too much excitement um, going on involving police and law enforcement. And so we're going to have to get back to all of that next month. And I hope that um, a big chunk of this panel will join me for that. So, um, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you for joining us. Thanks. And last but not least, Eric Banks making his legal roundtable debut. Eric, you are so quick on your feet. It's just always so great to talk to you, and I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.